passage we consider this morning can be found in Romans chapter 9. Uh, we come to this portion of circle some view is uh, uh, is is challenging there are there are some look at the book of Romans and say that there's eight uh, eight chapters uh, to begin of, of tremendous declarations of the gospel and and ends with four chapters of living out the gospel in our lives and three chapters uh, that are a parenthesis in between that some people are not quite sure why it's even there uh, but it is an important section of the scriptures and not only does it bring answer and some clarification to some questions, uh, it reaffirms and introduces some important principles that are also practical to our lives. And so before we go to the text, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy God, we do praise your name, and we bow before you, for you, O oh God, are worthy of all praise, all adoration, and even all obedience. We find our lives in your will. We find joy. We find peace. We find that life works best when we walk according to your principles with understanding of your ways. We confess that often we are perplexed. We are often without knowledge, and even with knowledge, we may not understand as things unfold before us. But Lord, we, we know that you who created all things simply by speaking them into existence, you who continues to control all things, you have the answers for life. And we stand amazed as you have revealed to us what we need to know about, your, about yourself, about ourselves, and about the way we are to live our lives. And you've recorded it in your word that was inspired by your spirit and written out by mere men like us. But nevertheless, through the ages, it is by this word, and it is by the Spirit applying this word in our minds and in our hearts, that you have brought transformation to the lives of individuals, to nations, and have brought forth expressions of the kingdom to the world. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, open our minds that we might gain understanding where understanding is needed, open our hearts that we may receive your word and your glory with love. Change us, Lord, by the truth of your word, we pray in Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 9, we'll begin our reading in verse 1, continuing through verse 13 this morning. Hear the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, uh, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The word of our God. It was the humorist Will Rogers who first said, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, it'll change. Now, that's been adopted by many, but Will Rogers was speaking of his own native Oklahoma, and his actual quote was, if you don't like the weather in Oklahoma, wait a minute, it will change. When I was in high school, I had my own experience with that Oklahoma weather change. My family had just moved from Philadelphia to a then small town outside of Tulsa, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And uh, despite their better judgment, uh, my parents had bought me a motorcycle that I would be able to get back and forth to school. When we moved there, the answer was, of course not. You're not getting a motorcycle. You'll die. But we lived 12 miles from the school. We had three football practices a day, including at 6 a.m. It's amazing how three weeks later, when my birthday came, I was given a motorcycle, a small one, only 125 cc's or limitations or whatever, And so I would go back and forth to school on a motorcycle. Well, one January, I drove my my motorcycle to school. A beautiful morning. Uh, I was probably in the mid-60s driving to school. And so like any day, you normally expect the weather to get warmer. But on that day where I drove to school and wearing nothing but a windbreaker and 60-some degree weather, School was let out immediately after lunch because it had begun to snow. And so I drove the 12 miles home on a motorcycle wearing a windbreaker in less than 30 degree temperatures. I was experiencing the wisdom and the insight of Will Rogers. Now, I shared that story in part just because I thought you might want to know, but, um, but more so because... The shift from going to Romans 8 to Romans 9 can almost seem just as drastic. Because at the end of Romans 8, Paul ends with this majestic crescendo of praise and of promise. And it finishes up with the, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. And then, with no intermission, we come to Romans 9. And what was glorying now seems much colder. Paul seems much more reserved. He's almost defensive and gives reason and argument for what he has just said. And so we move from what is warming to what may seem as somewhat cold and and sobering. Now, it's important that we understand that the reasons that Romans 9 through 11 are here is because they, uh, that Paul writes these chapter, what's in these chapters to give answer to questions that would naturally arise 
particularly in the minds of, of any Jewish people who had heard or read this letter for the first time. Because in, in Romans 8, when Paul finishes with that glorious celebration and asks, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And then answers, nothing, not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And because Paul, and the answer, reason for that is Paul shows us is that our salvation rests upon God and God finishes whatever it is that he starts. But Paul knows that any, any thoughtful Jewish person hearing that would say, wait a minute, didn't God make some quite tremendous promises to Israel? Weren't they, they were covenant promises that he made with Israel. What happened to them? I mean, you, they would have been aware that all of a sudden, it seems, all of these great promises that were made to Israel, many of their descendants now rejecting the one who had come in the name of God, Jesus Christ. And now the promises that were Israel's were being given just freely, promiscuously to all of these Gentile people. What happened to the promises with Israel? Why are some of them seeming now who were on the inside looking in from the outside? And if God had made promises to them and he's not faithful to these promises, why should anybody believe that he'll be faithful to the promises he's making to us in Romans 8? And even if it was because the people of Israel had been unfaithful, if their unfaithfulness could unhitch them from the promises that God had made, then wouldn't the unfaithfulness of the church, wouldn't the unfaithfulness of, of Christian people also be able to unhitch us from the problems or from the promises that God was making to us through Paul's writing in, in Romans chapter 8? And these questions are not just intellectual. They, they are quite personal because they get at the heart of whether or not you and I can trust God. Not whether we can trust him because circumstances of our lives don't seem to be going the way that we would want. But it gives us reason to wonder whether we can trust God based on his own word. And if we can't trust him on his own word, then it gives us reason to wonder whether we can trust God on the basis of his own character. And Paul understood that these were natural. These were not wrong, but these were inevitable questions. And so in these verses, he shows us in part the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. And then he presses a couple of principles that we will look at this morning. And these are essential things for us to understand and to embrace and to incorporate into our lives if we're going to experience and to enjoy the life that God has entrusted to every one of those who belong to him. And Paul begins the first thing that he wants us to see is, is this. God's word never fails. In verse 6, he, he says this. It's, it's not as if, as, as though the word of God has failed. And so it's important that we recognize that after Paul, he gives a kind of a personal testimony of his own understanding of his brothers in the flesh, his own Jewish people, and his affection for them, his attitude toward them. When he's bringing clarification, when he's bringing assurances of the trustworthiness of God, the first thing that he wants us to understand is 
It's not as if the word of God has failed. Before he makes any argument, before he gives any defense, before he gives any explanation, he wants us to rest on, to bank on the trustworthiness of God and what God has said and in God's word. The word of God. It's not as if the word of God has failed. Now, it may look like it has failed. I mean, if you you think about it for a moment, God had made some great promises to Abraham and through Abraham to his descendants. Because when God called Abram, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless the whole earth through you and through your people. And these promises that I'm going to make to you are not only to you, Abraham, they are to your descendants, those who are born in your line, those who are born into your family, those who you adopt into your family, anybody who comes under your roof, anybody who you can file an income tax exemption for, this qualifies. And not only to them, but to their descendants after them. So this is an incredibly large blanket that's being promised to Abraham. And now, with the coming of Christ, after hundreds of years of Israel and Judah having been scattered, there are some of the Jewish people who are on the outside looking in. Did God keep his promises to his people? Or did he fail? And even if the issue was God hadn't failed, but the people had rejected him and they had failed, did God fail to preserve his people? Because God knows us. Throughout the scripture, throughout the Old Testament, we're told he knows our frame, he knows we are dust, he knows we are weak, he knows we fail. Over and over again, Israel had failed and he had called a people who he knew were fallen, who were infected with sin, and who would fail. It was God's glory revealed throughout the Old Testament that he continued to love a wayward people. Now it seems that some of them were left out in in the cold, either because God got tired of his promises or he failed to preserve his people. And Paul says to that appearance, It's not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God has not failed. The problem is not the word. The problem is our understanding of the word. The problem is our understanding of the promises of God. And it's our lack of knowledge of the word of God. And this was not a new problem. This fact goes back to the very beginning. If you think about it in the garden, before our first parents fell, the conversation that took place between Eve and the serpent, and Eve speaks in response to the temptation of the serpent to eat from the tree that had been forgiven. And the serpent's question, has God really said? And Eve, aware of what God had said, responded to the serpent not by quoting exactly what God had said, but by adding ever so slightly to his word, but changing the implication, changing the meaning, even therefore changing the the nature of God. Because Eve's response was, God said, not do not eat from this tree, but don't even touch it, which God never said, meaning that God was harsher than he really is in life. But that very simple change of what God has said, as opposed to what God didn't say, the very subtle difference in our understanding of what God has said and what God is like and what she was perceiving 
led to all sorts of problems that we continue to see all around us today and experience in our own lives. And so Paul, from the very beginning, before he begins to make his argument, before he begins to give his explanation, he lays this foundation, he lays this principle. It is not as if the word of God has failed. The word of God does not fail. The word of God is God's power. The word of God is the only authority that we have for life in this life to direct us in the way that we are to live. And then Paul begins with his defense. So laying the foundation, first and foremost, the word of God does not fail. And the reason the word of God doesn't fail is because God doesn't fail. Paul now explains correcting the presumptions that not only would they have had in that day, but that many continue to have in, in our day. And he does so with a really seeming bizarre statement that is the second part of verse 6. Here is his answer. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That seems a little odd. Not everyone from Israel is Israel, is the way the Greek actually states that. It means that not everybody who's a citizen, not everybody who was born, not everybody who is from there is actually constitutes the people of God. And what we need to see here is that Paul is using the word Israel in, in two distinct senses that were being confused then and are sometimes confused even today. There are the people who were the biological descendants of Abraham and Abraham's family. They constituted Israel. They were a geopolitical nation state. They were governed by God's law because they were a theocratic nation state, originally governed by God and a, and, and, and a council of judges, but in their own crying out to be like all the other nations, eventually they were given a king. First Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then the wheels fell off and they were a divided kingdom but still governed by a king, less under the rule of God, but still with the pretense of being God. But they were still Israel, and God still continued to bless them up until the time of them being scattered to the nations. And even then, while scattered, God continued to bless and preserve a people. That was the national Israel. But when Paul is saying not everybody who is Israel, who is a citizen of the geopolitical community, is Israel, meaning the people of God, meaning spiritual Israel, he's saying from the very beginning there were people who were blessed under the tent, who were never the recipients of the promises that God had intended in the first place. They received the benefits and the blessings of growing up in that geopolitical community, one that had God's people, that was established for the purpose of blessing the nations, both by demonstrating the way that it, they could live with God, and then ultimately because it is through them, as Paul talks about it at the, in, in verse 5, that Christ was born and given to the nations. 
But from the very beginning, those who were spiritual Israel, those who were the people of God, those who were the recipients of the promises of God, were the ones who would believe and who would trust God. They were the people of God. And Paul here is saying, well, on the outside, everyone might look the same. And therefore, those who are now rejecting Christ, which is the reason they seem to be on the outside of these blessings that God is promising, that Paul has been writing about in Romans 1 through 8, the reality is they never were included targets of the promises of whom God, to whom God had made. And then he gives two examples from the Old Testament, two examples from the book of Genesis. He understandably points first to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring because that's where, in one sense, everything began. God called Abraham from among the pagans of the nations and said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. Leave your home and go where I send you. Abraham asked the natural question, where am I going? And the Lord said, I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham believed God and we're told both in Genesis and Paul picking it up again in Romans. He writes about it again in Galatians. Abraham believed God and because he believed God, it was credited to him, his belief He was credited as being righteous. It was credited to him as being righteousness. From the very beginning and calling Abraham, those who belong to God, those who would become spiritual Israel, those who are the people of God, are those who believe. We look exactly like everybody else. We live very similar to everybody else, same kind of houses, same kind of neighborhoods, same kind of hobbies. There might be distinctives, there are to be distinctives in the way we live as opposed to other people live, but depending on the culture, those differences are in some cases more drastic, in some cases um, more subtle. And so in one sense, from an external glance, it's impossible to distinguish between those who are the people of God and those who are just people who were created after the image of God, still worthy of all dignity. Just because God has created them, they're they're made after the image of God, but they've never believed. And so he points back to Abraham because of the promises that were made to Abraham and because the promises from the very beginning were made not just to Abraham, but to the descendants who would come after him. And then here's what Paul says. Not all are children of Abraham because they are... Uh, his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And right there, what Paul is bringing back to certainly the, the Jewish people would understand. God had called Abraham and he'd made a promise to him despite his advanced age and his wife's advanced age. He said, I'm going to bless the nations through a child that I'm going to give you. And biologically, it was impossible. And they'd had no children before. And so it would seem very unlikely, it would seem impossible for them to have a child. And God made the promise, and the subsequent years, not weeks, not months, but years between the time that God made the promise and the time that he ultimately delivered upon that promise, 
became too much for them. And so Abraham and Sarah, they talked about it, and Sarah said, well, legally, if you take my servant, and she has a child, you have a child with her, that child would be ours, and so we can help God along with this. Abraham, we have no idea how much, how much objection he put up to, with, about that idea. Took Hagar, had a child named Ishmael with her, who was the firstborn into his family. We see that Abraham had loved him and had, had given him uh, attention and, and cared for him. But God said, that's not the promise I made. The promises I'm making to you don't come simply because you had a child, but they come through the child of promise. As, as we pick up more, verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so right there, every Jewish person of that day and today would certainly have made the distinction between Abraham's children. One, Isaac, who was the father of the Jewish people. And the other, Ishmael who is the father of present-day Middle Eastern or Muslim nations. Never in Israel's history did they consider that the promises should be given to Ishmael and to his descendants. And Paul is bringing that truth back to their minds and saying, it's not about just the biological children, it's the children of promise. It's the ones that were through Abraham, through Isaac, that the promises belong. And so there he's bringing something that they understood but hadn't rightly applied and saying the promises had never been to all but to those who are the believing in the children of promise. Then he turns his attention to another, a couple generations later. In verse 10 he says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And so he's bringing attention now to the descendants and saying, okay, one case, it might be understandable, and every Jew of the day would have understood that you know, Ishmael was not considered as part of the promise because he wasn't a child of promise. He was a child of Abraham's own design. But now he comes through the line and saying, okay, but the promise child with Isaac, and then when Isaac had children, he had twins. They had twins. And, and the purpose of the twins was to demonstrate they were close. It's not like he had a son that was a firstborn and one who was much later. They were one after the other, but the culture of the day would say that all of the benefits, all of the um, promises go primarily to the firstborn. And, and yet in this case, before they were born, 
before either of them had done anything to be faithful to the covenant or to be unfaithful to the covenant, God had already determined that the promises would come through the younger son, Jacob, who would later be named, called, renamed Israel, meaning wrestled with God. And the emphasis here is even the line that comes through, even through the child of promise, two that were essentially equal. And yet the promise was made to one and did not include the other. God was working this out from the beginning. And he is now explaining what people kind of blurred in their understanding what God had stated, even if it wasn't understood. He was defining who his people were. And now as generations had passed and God was fulfilling the promise that he had made because Christ had been born through that line the primary way by which the people of God were going to bless the nations. And the promises now were being given out to Gentiles while many of the Jewish people were frustrated, angry, rejecting what Paul was now declaring to be the covenant of God. And God was saying, the word has not failed. This is the way it's been from the very beginning. Now, a lot of that is, seems very academic. And it may seem unfair. We're going to look next week a little bit more about whether God is just, whether God was unfair in, in doing this. But as an application, I want you to turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3. And to see how this was not only fair, it was incredibly gracious. And it was the plan from the very beginning. And it was the way that God fulfilled the promise to Abraham that through him, the nations would be blessed, including his people, which also includes the people who seem to get the short end of the stick here particularly Ishmael, Esau. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And I want you to hear this. But I want you to hear this with the ears of someone who has just heard these explanations, that not everybody in Israel is Israel. Not everybody who follows biologically from, uh, from Abraham are the beneficiaries of the covenant promises. That the promises made to Abraham were for the purpose of gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the earth, which includes almost every one of us here, maybe all of us here, unless you have Jewish blood. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Know then that is those of faith who were the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And what Paul elaborates here to the Galatians is that it's because God is faithful, because God has been faithful to his word, because God has kept his covenant promises to those whom he gave it to, it is possible for those who were not the original beneficiaries of the covenant promises, those from Gentile descendants, us, to also be the recipients of the covenant promises. And not only us who were outside of the covenant, but even those who seem to get the short end of the stick in the covenant promises, their descendants also have the benefit of God remaining faithful to begin with, that he was pro- made his promise that through his people that he preserved, who demonstrated an, an ongoing relationship with God, God's graciousness and his forgiveness for people that had rebelled throughout the generations. Through those people came the Christ, came the Messiah, who took upon himself our rebelliousness, who died, who rose again, and that everyone who believes should not only be forgiven, but be engrafted into the family of God. That promise is made to those who were born to Gentiles, those who were born to Israel, and those who are the descendants of those who seem to get the short end of the stick. Christ is the hope for all because God was faithful to his promise from the very, very, very beginning. And so while it looks like God is narrowing and Paul is narrowing down who the promise was for, the promise is for the nations and people from every tribe and tongue and nation that we belong to God. We become his covenant people by believing. And that's not even anything new from the very beginning. Abraham was called. He believed. And that was what credited him as being righteous. And throughout all of history, those who have been the believers have been the people of God, those who have trusted God. Before the coming of Christ, it was believing in the promise of the Messiah. After the resurrection, it was believing in the gift and the provision of the Messiah. But it has always been by God's gift of grace through faith in the person and the promise of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so rather than God being unfaithful, God is far more generous while he remains faithful than what we might be inclined to think. I don't have time to go into it a whole lot here, but I would be remiss if I didn't touch on it, and some of you would write me emails if I didn't. But also embedded in this is this doctrine that for some is uncomfortable known as unconditional election. We see that in the story of Jacob and Esau. It's a very uncomfortable verse, verse 13. Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. It's the answer to everyone says, God loves everyone. And God demonstrates his love to everyone because it is on both the righteous and the unrighteous, on the people that follow him and the people who hate him, that God pours out rain and provides There is an incredible love that is demonstrated, but in a redemptive way. We see from the very beginning, God has a chosen people. And that is good news for us. We are chosen not because of what we have done, because that's what is emphasized here. Before either Jacob or Esau were born, God had already made his decision. He had already decided something. And it wasn't based on who would be good and who would be bad, because the fact of the matter is, I, I don't know about you, but as I read the story of Jacob and Esau, I, I like Esau. 
I, I read about Jacob, and he seems to just, he's a wimpy weenie. I just, I don't really, I mean, I'm, he's, I'm sure he's been sanctified fully now, and, or I'll be sanctified when we meet him, but uh, he's not somebody I would have wanted to hang out with. As a friend of mine who was a hunter put it, which I appreciate the illustration, although it doesn't do me any good, but it might give a word picture to you. He said, you know, Esau was a man's man. Jacob was a mama's boy. And then what he says is, Esau was a hunter. Jacob was a golfer. And so it just kind of gives you, I'm not a hunter, so it does, it kind of loses something for me there, but it gives you the word picture there. It's not because one is better than the other. And you see that Jacob was a schemer and he was a manipulator and he just, it wasn't that God didn't know. But God chooses for his own purposes for which we do not understand. But the benefit to us is this. If God is the one who chooses, and he chooses despite ourselves for no conditions, no preconditions that would make us chosen, then when we fail, there is no condition that is going to cause God to reject us either. So the word of God doesn't fail. God is faithful. God is faithful to his own, whom he has chosen. And he gives us reason to trust because he is faithful. And because God is faithful, every word that he has spoken is also trustworthy. So that we who love God can say along with the prophet Isaiah, the grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, we give thanks to you for this difficult, in some ways, passage. Difficult because it doesn't align with ways that we might think are right and true. But I pray that you would give us the ability to see the consistency of your ways as you have revealed it through your word, through the old covenant and the new. You would give us the grace to die to ourselves and to our own ideas and to embrace the truth as you have revealed it. I pray further that you would give us the grace that we who believe would not boast or think that there's anything special about ourselves as if we are better than anyone, but that we would cling humbly and boldly to the promise that you have given to us in Christ. And grant us the grace to trust you whether circumstances seem foreboding, whether our lack of understanding of your word causes us to ask questions, or whether just our own spirit or the spirit of the enemy is convicting and reminding us of our own failure, reminding us of our own unworthiness. Lord, let us rest, let us bank upon not our performance, but your promise that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Our praise and glory to you, our God.
through Christ Jesus in the church and throughout the world. We pray, amen.